words on water. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Walt Marlowe. I'm the Executive Director of the Water Environment Federation. And I'm glad you've been able to join us for the second of a series of business roundtables that WEF is doing uh, to try to bring some of the latest thinking about coronavirus uh, from leaders in our water community. And I'm very fortunate today that we have three of those leaders uh, to join us. Uh, the first one is Keisha Powell, and Keisha has served as the commissioner of the City of Atlanta's Department of Watershed Management for four years under two administrations. And she leads the largest water and wastewater utility in the state of Georgia. Uh, it's a regional utility serving 1.2 million customers a day uh, through the motivated, skilled workforce of over 1,400 employees there. And uh, great news for Keisha in mid-May, she's gonna be transitioning back home uh, to the greater Washington DC area to serve as the Chief Operating Officer of DC Water. Uh, so welcome, Keisha. Thank you for having me. And our second panelist today is Paul Vogel, Paul's Principal and President of Greeley Hansen, a leading international civil environmental and water infrastructure consulting engineering firm, and it's headquartered in Chicago since 1914. Uh, he, uh, Paul brings 35 years of engineering and management experience and he's been responsible for directing large water infrastructure projects and long-range water management programs for major cities and municipal uh, utilities across the globe. So, Paul, welcome today. Thank you for having me. And our third panelist today is uh, Neil McAdam. Neil's the Senior Vice President at World Water Works, and in that role, he has 26 uh, years in, wa in water and wastewater treatment and he's held key positions in both Europe and the US uh, with US Filter, Siemens Water Technologies, and Veolia. Uh, and now uh, World Water uh, works for the last 10 years. Uh, so welcome, Neil. Thanks for having me, Walt. I appreciate the forum. Yeah, uh, again, thank you for sharing your uh, time and your expertise today. We're all under a lot of pressure with coronavirus. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainties we were chatting about beforehand. Uh, so I'm sure our uh, viewing audience today appreciates the insight that you'll bring to the table. So uh, let me start off. And, uh, you know, our first question I wanted to see, just give us a sense of how has your business been affected by coronavirus? And Keisha, you want to kick us off here? Well, you know, fortunately, um, the utility had updated our continuity of operations plans uh, last summer in July, um, the most significant uh, plan being for our uh, water and wastewater treatment facilities. Um, and we were very prepared going into the event to have with our pandemic action response and moving to alert level C and all of that. But obviously, there's been significant impacts to the way we do business. Over just under half of our um, employees are teleworking. Um, and I guess it was a blessing in disguise to have a major cyber attack at the beginning of 2018, because um, from that, we were able to, we had a lot of lessons learned and transitioned a lot of things to the cloud had already been in the process of doing that when the cyber attack hit. Um, so that's really helped us to transition the workforce um, that needed to telework to, to, the, to that posture. Um, and then our crews that are working, obviously, um, initially there was significant fear um, with the boots on the ground, especially those that were not able to physically social social distance themselves. Um, and so we had to, to issue more PPE masks for those employees um, to kind of calm those fears. And we've had to make some adjustments to our operations, but we moved to mission uh, essential functions 
um, and have highlighted for our teams that doesn't that doesn't mean just emergency work. It means that uh, there are some activities that we're suspending. We're suspending any activities that put our employees uh, directly in harm's way or at that time in proximity to the public. Um, but we had to we've had to work through those adjustments. I think the most significant impact to us is the the, the projected loss of revenue. We're projecting about <clears throat> an 11% loss in revenue. And what's very significant is we have a municipal option sales tax that supports our um, capital program, specifically um, the consent decree required improvements um, that have to be made. And we've got some milestones coming up in July 2020. Um, so we had to continue critical construction projects through this period. Um, we, we had a, a number of critical projects that were ongoing that we uh, did not stop. Um, but that, the loss in, for the, in, in most revenue due to the cancellation of some very large events um, here in the city of Atlanta will really be an impact to our capital program going forward. And I think the last um, significant impact was the need to restore service to customers who are properties that um, did not have water service either because they were, they were in shutoff status because of water theft or um, significant leaks that had not been repaired. Um, so this is giving us an opportunity opportunity to kind of step back and look at how we can assist those folks going forward um, to get accounts back in good standing. But we've restored service to over 500 properties um, and suspended shutoffs as part of our business continuity plan. And obviously the mayor issued an executive order um, to, to direct that there be no shutoffs and we'll continue that. So lots of stuff going on there. Uh, Paul, how about you? You bring a different perspective from the consulting segment of our industry. Uh, sure. A uh, couple of thoughts. You know, our organization has always been centered around our people. And if we position them to be successful, we're a professional services organization serving the water industry solely here in the U.S. and globally then they can obviously serve clients like Keisha, I'm thinking of DC Water, New York, Chicago. And then obviously the mission that those clients have in serving their communities uh, can be accomplished. And we've really had to ramp that up given the situation. So our, our primary focus from the get-go as this started, uh, as I would say, uh, gather steam in terms of the uh, criticality of the uh, COVID-19 issue. Uh, all of our people now are working virtually. So uh, it was making sure they were armed with the technology, uh, both hardware, software, and the appropriate training if they already didn't have it, to do the things like I'm actually doing today with you uh, in this virtual call. The uh, other part of that is we've got a lot of first-line responders, just like Keisha does, and a lot of other utilities, where we have people who are involved in critical infrastructure projects that are working 24-7 to ensure those projects get constructed so uh, people in the world have access to water. They always need it, but it's obviously much more critical right now. And uh, in order for them to do that, they obviously need the same types of uh, uh, PPEs that have been described by uh, Keisha. And I have to tell you, it's been very difficult in some instances to secure that. We don't have the, uh, you know, the leverage of a, a governmental entity, but we've managed to do that. And then more importantly with those people, uh, you know, they're very concerned about and they're water professionals. They want to do their job. They want to help, but they've got to go home to a family, right? And they're concerned about, you know, am I going to be, while I'm doing my job helping the world, am I going to be 
compromising my family. So there, there's been a lot of effort put in by us to, I, I call it the mental health. I mean, helping people deal with those types of issues. And, you know, I, the, the types of issues that come up, and I'm sure everybody on this call and you've heard it, Walt, I, every day is a new challenge. Every day is a surprise. But uh, endeavoring to keep our people uh, positioned to continue to deliver has been a major focus. And again, I, I don't want to brag, but I'm sure like everybody on this call, I'm very proud of what our people are doing. They are water industry professionals. They understand they have a responsibility. And I understand in a leadership position that I've got to position them to deliver on it. You know, uh, quickly regarding our clients, uh, we've had a lot of requests to do things out of the ordinary, and uh, we've endeavored to be as creative and innovative, and innovative as we can be. So we've asked, we've got clients, uh, you know, in the Mid-Atlantic who said, I don't have enough operations staff to run a water treatment facility. Do you have any ideas? We've gotten on calls with them, brainstormed. We brought forth some of our people who actually, while they aren't certified water treatment plant operators, they've worked in the industry. Uh, they've taken on responsibilities of what I would call the people who can actually deliver those services for the utility. And we've tried to do some of the back behind the scene things to allow those people to be freed up so they can deliver on the critical mission that they can do, just as a example. Uh, you know, another thing I would indicate is it, it's been a, uh, a mixed bag, both geographically and contingent upon the utilities. Uh, some have basically said, stop everything you're doing. Others have said, slow down, we got to figure things out. Others have said, hey, we got we to gotta move ahead. And uh, so it's been a, a very dynamic situation. We're constantly pivoting to address those needs. And actually, I know we'll get into this later, we're trying to foreshadow uh, what the utilities can expect in consultation with them, just like what we're doing here today, uh, so we can have people position to actually uh, get through what's going to occur in the future. And the last part of this, I would say, is uh, actually uh, dealing with what Keisha touched upon. Uh, you know, unfortunately, there are people in the world who prior to this didn't have access to the water that they need, and even here in the United States. And uh, we have done our utmost in the communities where we serve to try to address the, uh, what I would call the water inequities especially the financial constraints people have in paying their water bills, et cetera, to help people in that regard, both the utilities and others. Because uh, again, when it's all said and done, uh, I know this is the mission of all of us. That's why we've chosen to participate in this industry. And uh, we're doing our utmost to make sure people have access to the water. I'll stop there. Great points. Uh, Neil, you bring another perspective as a manufacturer and solution provider, which is critical to the industry. So what do you see as some of the effects uh, for you all right now? Well, like the, you know, the two speakers before, tremendously challenging. Uh, you know, World Water Works has 100 employees and about 70 of them are based in Oklahoma City. Um, you know, their healthcare is paramount in our thinking. Uh, as a company, we have a mantra, constant and never-ending improvement, can I? Uh, you know, we always felt that we were very dynamic and we were very adaptable and flexible. Uh, and this virus is taking that to another dimension. You know, ev everything that we're doing, uh, we, we instituted anyone that can work from home will work from home we didn't appreciate the challenges that would bring. You know, technology is one of them, but, uh, you know, supporting them, coaching them, people that are normally, you know, around a coffee machine or something during the day, they, you know, they, they get a buzz from their, their colleagues, you know, a sense of purpose and, uh, and unity. You know, when they're stuck in a bedroom or an attic like Paul is, 
then you know they lose all sense of that uh, you know the, the ability to you know just walk down to the guy in the next desk that has always you know been able to offer you know guidance you know mentorship whatever so you know that that's been an education in itself um, we didn't impact uh, we didn't um, understand the impact that homeschooling would have on all the people that we've got working from home now we just have to accept that there are times when they're not going to be available to you because they're looking after the children and and it's been beautiful like you know Keisha was talking about uh, with the cakes and things like that we too are getting daily lashings of uh, you know what the kids are teaching mum and dad um, but you know one of the funniest things is telling people that are not used to working from home when it is appropriate to have the Zoom video switched on, you know, because some of them uh, don't prepare as well as we have today. You know, they, they, they have different clothes on, sometimes not many clothes, you know, so that's been a, a, a really funny uh, upside to all of this. But, you know, from a production point of view, you know, we have... Our, our production is, is some, in some regards like a car a manufacturing facility. We have teams of four that follow the production through, you know, each phase. And of course, they work in relatively close proximity. They now have masks on top of all the other safety equipment that they wear. Uh, and then, you know, the protocols that we have for them at the end of a shift, sanitizing at the beginning of the shift, their temperatures have been taken. So we're... we're we, we don't have a, a, an environmental health and safety department as such. We have a safety officer, we have an HR director, and so many of the protocols that we're putting in place, we're getting you know, assistance from some of the customers we have. They're guiding us on what they're doing at their facilities and allowing us to mimic them. And then sometimes our manufacturing is so unique that we have to develop the protocols ourselves. So, you know, basically, I, I, I did have some bullets in them. Excuse me for, uh, you know, altering my uh, iPad here. But, you know, the manufacturing facility uh, has adapted these. They're working great with them. We're limiting suppliers visiting us. Customers would come in to see how their equipment's progressing. That's all stopped. We're relying heavily on, you know, Zoom uh, to do so much from a sales perspective, it's completely transformed how we do business. We're doing much more online. Uh, we would attend multiple WEF conferences. Now we're organizing our own seminars and approaching, you know, consultants alike to see if we can, uh, you know, encourage them to join in our seminar to look at technologies that we have. Um, but, you know, every day internally, externally, we're having to show flexibility, understanding, empathy, and having to repeat it consistently. Uh, so that, that's the manufacturing challenge that, uh, that we're seeing. Wow, uh, excellent insight. I mean, all three of you touched on the unique human challenges that we're all going through uh, this period. And, and you, know, you all hit on uh, kind of some of the immediate response things, but I'd like to see you know, as you plan for business over the next six to 12 months, uh, you know, what kind of specific actions do you see your organization having to take? Paul, I'll give you the first word this time. Okay, thank you. Um, there's a lot of things. I mean, uh, in parallel right now, um, we are geographically dispersed, our offices in the U.S. and overseas. So uh, I think all of us can appreciate that, uh, there's disparity in thought as to how things should be brought back online and when it should be brought back online. So, uh, you know, the first thing, again, it really centers around the safety in our people, because without that equity, and I mean that respectfully, we won't be able to fulfill our vision and mission. So uh, there's a lot of efforts to determine when and people are eager to know uh they're eager to know because there are people that you know they're they're uh, uh, 
single parents that have multiple children that have daycare issues. I mean, that the schooling, everything that was discussed. Uh, we've worked uh, to get all of our facilities sanitized and put them in a position where people uh, will be comfortable to come back to them. Uh, but due to the geographic disparity of how that's to be done, I'm talking maybe at a state level here in the U.S., there's a lot of challenges with the physical distancing. I mean, uh, clearly, that's just the social networking that people want, being at the coffee machine in a break area. Uh, we can't, apparently can't do those things moving forward, at least in the, the near term. And so trying to figure out how we even arrange our space uh, will probably go to multiple shifts. I, I, I'm speculating here where certain days people will be in critical and in others. So there's a lot of thought going into that and it hasn't been figured out. And I will tell you, there's, uh, I wouldn't call it pressure from our people, but people are eager to know so they can figure out their own personal lives. You know, I'll touch on another thing. Uh, you know, it, it is the financial aspect. I mean, we're in a market that is predominantly in the public sector. We have great appreciation for the challenges our clients have, but we're trying to make sure our financial house is completely in order so we're able to fulfill all our commitments. And, you know, there's a lot of volatility out there. I'm not telling anybody on this call something they don't understand. So we're constantly paying attention to that. And I think the, the bigger thing is a little bit of a pivot, you know, in the next six to 12 months. And I personally believe this and people at Grilly and Hanson believe it. I mean, the crisis in front of us is what I would call a crisis that revolves around sanitation. And, you know, that word may be an old word for newer generations, but if you look back to the turn of the previous century, I'm talking about when 1900 showed around, there was places in the United States where people were dying of typhoid, cholera, et cetera. And actually uh, the Water Environment Federation and all its predecessors is a result of that. People understood that there was a need and people had to step up and lead and do things. And so what we've been doing is working with our people and our clients to make sure, again, we all understand uh, collectively that is our mission. I also recognize, and I'm listening to Keisha, and the same thing's happening everywhere, big drops in revenue. I'm a firm believer that the water sector is going to lead the reignition of the economic engine in the United States. And... Uh, I know we can do it because we've done it before. I look at what occurred in the Clean Water Act. And so we're trying to get people to think differently about how we can act, not wait, but act, work together and actually lead this industry and the people in this industry can lead people at a political level, at a community level, that if we do this correctly and we do it smartly, and I'm going to use this word, let's not create a bunch of bureaucracy to get in the way. I know it's easy to say, hard to do, but if we can get people to think this way, I think a lot of the strategies we've been trying to get implemented in this industry could actually get implemented. And I'm referring to the social equity, the economic equity, the people who've got lead service co uh, connections in poor communities whose water may have been turned off, that we can change that whole paradigm, fix those problems, make sure water is available to people, and actually by doing it with that mindset, reignite the economic engine. And that's what we're trying to do. And I know it's a big lift, but I'm up to it. I know the people at Greeley and Hanson are up to it. And I actually believe the people in the water sector are up to it. So I'll stop there. Great topics. You know, maybe that's a, a good uh, transition over to Akisha's thoughts on the next six to 12 months activities. Yeah. And I, you know, just building on um, what Paul was saying about the social equity and um, or inequities that that this is underscoring. Um, I do think 
that this will, or I, or at least hope that this will spur a sense of urgency um, for action to be taken to address affordability, um, because that is going to be a significant challenge going forward. It's becoming a significant challenge now with so many people um, becoming unemployed so quickly. Um, the, the last thing most folks think about paying is their water bill, particularly now that we um, are not um, in a, a posture of collecting um, and enforcing collections via shutoff. Um, but that is going to be a significant challenge going forward. And so while we in the city of Atlanta were looking at our care and conserve uh, customer assistance program um, already, we're now looking at how do we make sure that more people can take access of that type of program and get the assistance that they need. Um, so that work, and I've talked to many of my colleagues, and everybody is looking to do the same thing. Um, so I think this is this is really underscored a significant issue um, in in Atlanta and other cities that that just shows that everyone has not had the access to safe, clean drinking water that should have. Um, but, you know, for us in terms of the next six to 12 months or for the city of Atlanta, in terms of the next six to 12 uh, months, there's definitely some things that we've already started to contemplate given the impacts to revenues, given we, we, likely will not see those large events that we've seen in past years that contribute to the most sales tax. Um, a financially constrained utility already because of the two consent decrees we've had, having to make a significant cut to next year's budget, and we're projecting that this is going to go beyond next fiscal year. Um, we're having to, to think about um, how we continue to move forward with required capital improvements under our consent decree program. So we've started looking at restacking our capital program and reprioritizing um, work that we had started to really look at integrating our Clean Water Atlanta program, which is for the consent decrees with watershed protection work, which largely is our green infrastructure work. Um, was showing that we could reduce that capital program by 30%. Um, so I expect that we'll move forward, definitely uh, utilizing more green infrastructure and have more of a, uh, have more urgency about um, implementing those types of projects. Um, obviously that will come with the concern of, of making sure we have the the land available to implement those types of projects. Um, we've already started non-invasive health screening at our facilities. But when you talk about operations going forward, uh, what we know and what we've seen so far is that we've had folks that to test positive for COVID-19 that exhibited no symptoms. And so even doing the non-invasive health screening we know that we're going to have to move forward with a higher level of protection in the work, workplace where we do have staff. And it's likely we'll go an extended period of time um, having folks continue to telework. And so all of the, the challenges uh, that Neil talked about with having folks teleworking, we're going to have to continue um, to, to help employees manage those challenges. Um, but we've got to, you know, thinking through how the utility will function going forward and at what point um, city buildings reopen and we're working in large part with um, the administration to really look at this. We know that we have to have a plan in place and that's going to require us having the sanitation supplies, the PPE on hand to make sure that folks' health and safety remain our top priority. Um, and I, I don't believe at this point um, where that's something that we can do. Um, so that, that planning will start taking place. I think it'll be a while out before we get back to 
um, a position where we're actually occupying our headquarters building um, and, and making changes, um, continuing to make changes in our operation to facilitate health and safety. So Neil, what, uh, you know, I'm sure some of your actions at your company are very similar to this, but, but what other aspects do you see over the next six to 12 months? I'll give you the positives and then I'll talk about the concerns. You know, um, Q1, Q2 order book has been very generous to us. So we, we have started the year fabulously well. Uh, we've got a, a strong backlog of projects from 2019. Uh, and we've got very good cash flow and liquidity for the moment. Um, we also probably epitomize the small businesses that the government was saying uh, could apply for loans and potentially they'll be forgiven. So, you know, as a critical supplier, we, we applied for a loan. And I have to tell you, you know, every time you switch on the TV, you hear about money not being available or people not being able to get it. I think we applied on the Thursday and the, the money was uh, issued the following Wednesday. Uh, but the bank that was doing all the handling of that is our bank anyway. So we were known to them. But that, that has been a wonderful uh, addition uh, for us. And then when we, uh, you know, when we start looking at our business in general, we work typically 70% industrially, 30% municipally. Uh, so as we look at Q3 and 4, uh, we've got a reasonable industrial pipeline that we believe are going to close. Uh, and in Q4 specifically, we've got some... Uh, you know, municipal projects that we have been working on for three years that are expected to be awarded. And our, our hope is that, that that stays on course and uh, isn't, uh, isn't deferred. Um, you know, food and beverage uh, is principally our biggest industrial market. You know, the government has mandated that a lot of these food manufacturing facilities are going to stay open. We work with lots of them. So, you know, much as oil and gas is a piece of uh, business that we do that's in decline for the moment, uh, food and beverage we see is going to be the mainstay of our industrial business, and that should cover all our uh, operational overhead. Um, you know, the concerns, we've got to execute on these projects, and some of our partners are not being able to travel to site. Uh, you know, their, their, their health... Uh, They've had COVID-19 uh, people contract the virus. Uh, so their crews are depleted. So that is going to be an impact if we can't finish out these projects, uh, you know, to schedule. Um, we're worried about the economy being slow to reopen. Um, people are talking about the virus coming back um, uh, more aggressively in the fall, uh, aligned with the flu. Uh, we're worried about that. You know, for the, the capital projects, you know, a lot of people will say cash is king. So we're, we are worried that on the industrial side, a lot of companies might do the improvements that they were planning and just hold on to their cash. And on the municipal side, we actually want to see the government do, a, you know, a, a, an infrastructure stimulus package because we believe that there's too many utilities don't have the money to begin with. Keisha talked about the, the revenue uh, losses that they're going to see. So without that stimulus package, uh, they might have to fall back on, you know, the private public uh, approach, the 3P. Uh, but that is a huge concern for us for, uh, you know, moving into 2021. Well, Neil, you hit on a, a couple of interesting points too, especially around finance and, you know, Keisha and Paul also hit on items uh, that touch on supply chain. Uh, so, you know, Neil, what, what steps or strategies are, are you all taking uh, to ensure that pipeline of, of resources, whether it is materials or, or financing, uh, is it available to meet your needs right now? Well, I think the, you know, we, we have, um, you know, every, every manufacturer strives for, uh, you know, a razors and razor blade model. Um, Every time we manufacture something that we felt had failed prematurely, we would engineer the problem away. 
So we really don't have a decent, you know, spares service business. Uh, but we have a wonderful rental fleet. Um, so, you know, in the previous section, I talked about companies maybe deferring capital projects. We have a rental fleet that will be able to push into that uh, sector that they can work off of their OPEX budgets. The manufacturing questioner that you asked, we basically are an American manufacturer and we took the decision early on to use as many American suppliers as possible. Uh, so, you know, we have certain raw materials that we use in uh, tremendous volumes and we're already working with our key suppliers there and aligning some backup suppliers. Um, you know, everywhere we've identified a critical component, we're making sure that we have a second source of that in the US. So a lot of what we do, we, we, we were lucky because it was already our intention of having American supply. So as long as the suppliers stay healthy, and avoid the viruses touching their manufacturing, we've got a good feeling that uh, we're gonna be okay uh, in terms of the raw materials you know, in our supply chain. In terms of projects, industrial pays, the, pays all our bills. So as long as we can maintain a level of industrial capital projects and we can make sure that our rental fleet is um, you know, adequately uh, you know, utilized, then we think we're going to be okay in the short term. Uh, again, a stimulus package would be amazing. And, and I think that uh, that would take care of all our uh, concerns for uh, 2021. Paul, how, how about your organization's supply chain? Yeah, on a tactical level within the organization, I think there's been a lot of discovery by us uh, on a lot of fronts about where there's uh, uh, opportunities to improve. But uh, let me touch upon this. We uh, have uh, very significant, uh, sophisticated clients like DC Water, the city of New York, the city of Chicago, who are very well organized. And the exchange of information between us and them is all done electronically, including invoices and payment for our invoices or task order services. Then there's a lot of our clients by virtue of their size who, who don't have that level of sophistication. And I'm, I'm not being disrespectful to them. They, they, they can't afford it because of their budgets. Uh, what we discovered very quickly uh, in this crisis is we needed, to we needed to help them with that. So we've provided them the platforms. We've provided some training. We've had to shift the way in which we conduct our securing invoicing and receivement of payment for our services to accommodate and help them. And I think some of them actually have said, hey, you know what? Now that we've seen it this way, this is actually helping us do things better. Um, the other thing, since the stimulus has been mentioned and you know, listening to Keisha, her capital programs, how she's trying to address, address the revenue loss. Uh, what uh, we're endeavoring to do is, uh, I believe that this money will come from the federal government. I mean, the, I've heard numbers of 40 billion, whatever the number is, there's something there. It, it's how we can quickly get that money to trickle all the way down into the hands of those who need it most. And I'm not talking about my organization. I'm talking about the people who, there is inequities in the economy and they don't have the water. So the way Greeley and Hansen sees it is, generally the state revolving loan or drinking water revolving loan funds will be the mechanism for the distribution of that. We're trying to work with clients now to identify where they've had strategic things that they've always wanted to do. An example would be lead services. And so how can you position yourself with the state agency, which is gonna manage the disbursement of these funds, so you are in position to uh, receive some of this money to get some things accomplished? 
and ready, not in a year. I mean, moving very quickly so we can start doing it and putting people back to work. And more importantly, putting people to work who maybe never had an opportunity to work such that the money trickles down into the communities where people need it most. And we're working on that every day. And again, it, it's not easy. There's a lot of, uh, I think, things that are in place. But uh, I think about a decade ago when there was the Recovery Act uh, for a different purpose, not of the magnitude that exists now. And I remember people saying to me personally, Paul, you'll never get that done in 30 days. And I go, it's got to get done in 30 days. So we got to figure out a different way how to do it. And we we can't let human-made uh, inhibitions, I call it bureaucracy, they get in the way of what's got to get done. There's people counting on us. And so I think when people think that way and collaborate, and I'm talking about utilities, the regulatory agencies, the SRF funding, uh, people at the congressional level, people in the communities, we've got a lot of smart people, not only in this industry, but in the country. And when they do that, we come up with ways to make it happen. So that's what we're endeavoring to do, to, to uh, not only fulfill our promise, but really get us back to where we should be and maybe should have been before and beyond. Uh, that's, you know, interesting, Paul. Certainly we, we do have an industry of can-do people. You know, Absolutely. Keisha, your staff right now are getting it done every day. They're really on the uh, tip of the sword out there as essential workers. How's yeah. the supply chain, you know, impacting what you do? You know, when we, on May, March 11th, when the pandemic was declared, um, I think my biggest concern and thought was, um, you know, the workers, the boots on the ground that are the most vulnerable in many ways. Um, in the water sector, for years, we've talked about this silver tsunami and the retirement eligibility rate that all of, uh, all of us as utilities have um, in the water sector. Our retirement eligibility rate has been about 50% for the next five years. Um, there are a number of, of individuals that, uh, among our frontline workers that are older um, and that have underlying health conditions. And so the scariest and most frustrating thing was having supply chain interruptions and in getting PPE, specifically masks, uh, because we knew early on that um, realistically, our crews could not socially distance themselves to get their work done. When you are talking about um, individuals that are in a trench um, trying to work safely, to uh, restore service, um, fix a sewer, or whatever the case may be, um, and even crews riding to a job in a crew truck together, um, they didn't want to breathe on one another. And so this is just extremely, it, has, it was very frustrating and scary for them. Um, so we started issuing masks to everyone before the CDC's guidelines changed. So our burn rate increased. Um, and it's been very difficult. Um, supplies that we ordered months ago um, still have not come in. And while we understood um, that it was absolutely necessary for healthcare workers to have N95 masks and, 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 and face coverings, we've got wastewater workers who um, it was recommended by CDC um, previously all along for them to have um, that higher level of protection. And so we had some discussions very early on. Um, we were um, happy to be invited to a discussion with EPA, um, EPA's administrator, to, to talk about the challenges that we, we had, that we saw, and to request that um, there be consideration for critical infrastructure workers being prioritized for testing and for PPE. And I think slowly but surely through uh, the last several weeks that has happened, um, we also raised the issue early that with 
there being folks that are asymptomatic among our workforce, you know, we can't run facilities if we don't have the operators. So even though we had a list of uh, a roster of retired operators and we polled all of our A&E consultants to make sure that we, we started cross-training folks to run our facilities in case we lose operations staff. Um, it's just very necessary to make sure that we have the supplies and materials, hand sanitizer. We had to turn to a distillery uh, to get a batch of hand sanitizer. Um, you know, we had to enter our resource requests and to see that folks that had entered their requests after ours were being filled and ours was, was not, uh, was frustrating. But I think now we're starting to see materials come in. It was a great thing uh, to have alternative masks approved uh, by, uh, by NIOSH and uh, OSHA so that we could um, feel confident in distributing those supplies to our employees. Uh, but I think that this will continue. Going back to the question that you asked before about the next six to 12 months, um, the supply chain for PPE and other materials will be critical for us. Uh, we haven't seen, thank goodness, an interruption in the supply chain for um, critical chemicals for treatment or spare parts. Um, that has remained intact and we've kept close watch over those things. But certainly moving forward, it will be necessary to make sure that we have the high level of, of protection. Thanks to all of you. This has been a wealth of information and I, and I hope our viewers today are getting as much value out of it as I feel I'm getting. Uh, a kind of wrap up today, I'll give each of you a, you know, a quick minute for any final thoughts or, or you know, the contributions you see your organization providing over the next uh, couple of months as we work our way through this. Uh, Neil? Uh, well, change. Everything's about change uh, today. Uh, and, you know, people don't like change. And I'm trying to encourage all of them within our company, you know, to adapt and embrace it positively uh, and timely. Um, you know, we're trying to stay close to our customers, our partners, and our suppliers, and we're trying to listen to what they're telling us. Um, you know, we're asking hard questions of ourselves and others. Um, we're trying to trust their instincts. And, you know, when I was at high school, there was a poem. I, I'm Scottish, so I say poem. I don't say poem. Uh, it's like herbs. It's a herb. Uh, but, but what it does say, it says, if... If you can keep your head while all our others around you are losing theirs. And, and I, I keep trying to drive that to all of my colleagues and my team. So that's yeah. basically the, uh, my closeout statement. Yeah. Paul, last thoughts from you? It's, uh, I don't have a great poem to quote, but I <laughs> no, sincerely uh, completely believe in the philosophy that Neil just set forth. I would say it this way. Uh, there's a lot of challenges, uh, irregardless of what it is. It's going to be the courageous leadership and management of people. And I believe people in the water industry that are going to help propel us out of this crisis. And I will tell you what personally encourages me every day, because I'm one of those silver guys that Keisha was talking about. Uh, the reality is, the reality is, I have watched so many less experienced people in our organizations and in other organizations when they've been empowered in this crisis to do things they've never done before they've actually stepped up and led and that provides me with tremendous inspiration and faith that uh we'll get it solved and the world will propel forward those are my thoughts Keisha, your last thoughts you know, every morning uh, at 10 a.m., we have a, an ops call for um, our operations across the department, including uh, folks that, uh, leaders that are, uh, whose teams are teleworking and those that are serving as frontline staff. Um, and I've asked folks to meditate on a few things, um, namely Psalm 91. And, um, 
you know, I know that we will get through this. Um, and the reason why is, is not just because we prepared, but because we're resilient. And I think what this is showing us is that resilience for the urban water sector or just the water sector in general is more than just being prepared for more rain. Uh, we have to think about um, how we come through cyber attacks, how we will work through a pandemic response and, and be better on the other side of this. And I think what this um, has showed us is that we can still, in some ways, achieve higher levels of productivity um, and be creative and thoughtful about how we, can, how we serve, but that the most important piece is that we continue to serve. And if there hasn't been anything else that has given our teams a shot in the arm in terms of um, feeling a level of importance when so much has been out of sight and out of mind that we do, it has been this event because uh, we are, we've been able to tell folks that the services that we provide, the critical service of providing safe, clean drinking water every day is now the highlight of many people's day. When people are very, very cognizant of where the water is coming from and that the water is there for 20 seconds at a time, um, that is a great thing. And so I think on the other side of this, we will, I'm hoping as a sector, leverage these opportunities to really highlight the importance of the water sector, the work we do, and the people that are doing the work. Uh, excellent closing message. Uh, this is an amazing profession uh, with passionate, dedicated, and extremely competent people. Uh, and I'm lucky to have the three of you, which who all embody those kind of features in our industry, uh, and to have you part of the WEF community. So again, thank you for your time today. Uh, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing the three of you at future events as we all are able uh, to get back together again over the next uh, six to 12 months or, or beyond that. Uh, so again, thank you. I'm very glad to have you here today. I hope our viewers today have enjoyed this session uh, and look for others in this series of talking uh, with water sector leaders on the WEF.org website as we go forward through this crisis. Uh, so thanks for your time today. Words on water.